This morning from Mark, chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then Is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. My dad was a jokester. He loved to hear a good joke and tell a joke. He also liked to play jokes on other people. He was a prankster of sort. He loved to play this game with my brother and I where he would hear us coming and hide behind a chair or a door and then when we came by he would jump up and scream and we would shriek and scream and then we'd all fall down and laugh hilariously or maybe get in a wrestling match with each other. It was great fun for us to play like that with my father. And then I met my wife Mary and we were dating and I thought, oh, I know what will be fun. And I would wait when I would hear her coming, and I would jump out and scream. She did not laugh. (laughs) She was startled and scared and thought that was about the stupidest thing I could have done. It took me a few times of trying before I figured out this was not for her. She was not amused. But even today, if my brother and I are in the same place, or if we happen to be traveling together, it would not be uncommon for one of us to wait on the other, then jump out and scare or startle the other one, and we would both laugh hilariously. Not so with his wife either. <laughs> We've both had to learn this lesson. They cannot understand why we think this is so much fun and so funny. Well, we find a similar struggle in the passage today between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples and Jesus can't quite understand each other and how they're approaching this experience of being in the boat and having this storm. Mark tells us that all they're trying to do is cross over to the other side of the sea, apparently to get away from the large crowds that are gathering to hear Jesus teach. And on the way over, Jesus is taking a nap. The storm arises. The boat begins to rock. Waves begin to pour in. The disciples are beginning to panic somewhat. And Jesus is sound asleep. And they cannot understand how He could possibly sleep through this storm. So they wake Him up and ask Him, does He not care that they are perishing, that they're all about to drown And Jesus calms the storm. 
one of the commentators I read this week was Dr. Wendy Farley. She's a professor of religion at Emory University. Commenting on this passage, she writes this, Jesus cannot understand why they were afraid. Have you no faith? He asked them. To Jesus, their fear is incomprehensible. To them, Jesus' calm is incomprehensible. They have had different experiences in their lives with God up to this point. And it seems that those differing experiences from their past inform them in ways which make it difficult to understand one another. I want to take a moment and look back at what Mark has told us so far about Jesus and the disciples so that we can see what's going on here. If you have your Bible open, you can flip with me back to chapter 1. This is how Jesus begins. I mean, this is how Mark begins his gospel about Jesus. He writes, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tips his hand, so to speak, right off by telling us this Jesus, He's the Anointed One. He has a special relationship with God. He's Son of the Father. Then he goes on to tell us about John the Baptist preaching and how Jesus went out to be baptized. He tells us about Jesus' baptism, and this is how he ends that section. In verse 10, Mark writes, And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on Him. And a voice came from heaven, You are My Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then Mark says, Immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. And yet he notes that while he was in the wilderness, the angels were in ministry to him. And then when Jesus finishes the temptation and comes back and begins to speak, he proclaims this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus has these pivotal experiences that Mark records. They give Him a profound sense of assurance of God's presence and provision for His life. The disciples are not a part of this. Four of them are called shortly after these experiences, and they get to see Jesus heal a number of people. But the majority of the disciples miss all of that. According to Mark, they're not called until a later occasion. He talks about it in chapter 3 when Jesus calls them up onto a mountain. And then after selecting the twelve, it says Jesus decides to go home. So they all go home. When they go back out on the road with Him, then He tells a series of stories or parables. And then we come to this story today where they've gotten in the boat and this storm has blown up out of nowhere. 
These disciples don't have very much experience with Jesus. They haven't seen the great power that He seems to embody. And so when they're in the midst of the storm and the boat begins to rock and the wind's blowing and the waves are pouring the water in so much so that it seems like the boat is about to swamp, they cannot believe that this fellow, this teacher, this rabbi, their leader is asleep. Does he not care that we're all about to drown? And so it's no surprise that once they wake him up and he says, Peace, be still, and the storm subsides, that they say to each other what we read in that very last verse, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him. Experience makes a difference in our lives. Jesus has had these profound experiences with God that Mark describes. The disciples have not had all of those experiences. And it makes a difference in terms of how much they trust God and what they expect to happen in their lives. Sometimes we need someone else to come alongside of us and give us guidance and direction and counsel. Sometimes we need someone else with greater faith than ours to walk with us through a difficult time in our lives. Have you seen the movie, Our Souls at Night? We watched it not so long ago. It came out last year. It stars Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. I had not seen either one of them in a movie for quite some time. I was kind of surprised. They've aged quite a bit. (laughs) They play older people in this movie. One a widow, one a widower. They live down the street from one another and one day she comes over to his house and knocks on the door and asks if she could come in. He says, sure. She says, you know, we've lived across the street, down the block from each other for decades and we don't really know each other. I'm wondering if maybe it would be good to get to know you. Maybe we could spend some more time together. She even is so bold after they've had a little bit of chit-chat and a cup of coffee to say, I even think it might be a good idea if we spend the night together. Just in a platonic manner, she says. But she says, I think it would ward off the loneliness I'm experiencing in widowhood. He says, let me think about it. They begin to spend a little more time together. They strike up a relationship. But things get complicated very quickly when one day her son comes to her house. He explains to her that he's having some marital problems. It appears that he's seeking her counsel. But then we find out why he's really there when he says to her, and I'm wondering if you could keep... He has his seven-year-old son with him. I wonder if you could keep him with you for a while while I go back home and try to work this out. She is not sure what to do. 
But of course, it's her grandson and her son, and they're in distress. And so she agrees to take the boy into her home. Of course, that throws the boy into a relationship with this older man that she's become friends with. It's kind of awkward at first, but then one day he pulls out a toy train and says, have you ever seen anything like this? Oh, no. And they put the track together and play train for a while. Oh, it's of great excitement to the young boy. And then he finds out he doesn't know how to throw a baseball. So he gets out a baseball and a couple of mitts and teaches the kid how to throw. They go camping together in the mountains and cook out and roast marshmallows. And over the course of the movie, you see this relationship developing. And you can tell that the quiet confidence and wisdom of the older man is changing this boy's life. When he got there, he was all turned in on himself and quiet and wouldn't look anyone in the eye. You could tell he was not happy. As you watch this relationship develop between the boy and the older man, you see that he gets brighter and begins to talk to people, look people in the eye, able to have conversations. It's just gains a greater sense of himself. This relationship between the older man and the boy, you can see, is changing the young boy's life. The disciples need the attention and the confidence and the experience of Jesus in the midst of this storm. They wake Him up and ask Him in verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They are looking for help to get through this storm. They believe Jesus might be able to help them. This is not courage that they are going to gin up from inside of them. They are looking outside, hoping that somehow Jesus can do something to save the day. And sure enough, Jesus calms both the storm and the disciples' fears all at once. Now, most of us are not going to find ourselves in a first century boat on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a windstorm. And yet the truth is that often it's not until we are caught in the middle of a storm of some sort that we become keenly aware of our need for Jesus. Maybe you've had this experience where things in your life are going great, smooth sailing, so to speak, and you begin to feel good about yourself, which is all fine. But you know what's easy? It's easy to begin to think, I've got this under control. I'm making all of this happen. And we forget about the role that God has played all along in our lives. It's so easy to forget the spiritual aspect of our living when things are going really well. But I've seen this over and over throughout my ministry. When the seas begin to get turbulent and the waves begin to crash over a person's head and they sense the water's filling up the boat and they're about to be swamped, they think about God. They become keenly aware of their need for Jesus in those moments. They become aware that they need the presence and the power of something bigger 
that's beyond themselves to come in and get them through the storm that they find themselves caught in. John Wesley had this experience literally and existentially in his early 30s as a young man. He's doing very well in England. He's finished his education. He's becoming an ordained priest in the Anglican church. He's teaching and preaching and guiding people in spiritual affairs. Britain, though, is busy colonizing the world. And a fellow named Oglethorpe is starting a colony named after King George II in the New World. They call it Georgia. He's started the colony. He's back in England. He realizes he needs some clergy to go with him to be in ministry with the British citizens they've taken as well as with the natives they've met in this new land. And John Wesley thinks, Maybe that's for me. And so he signs up and volunteers. The only problem is he's never been on a ship. And it's going to take three months to sail from England to Georgia. He begins to have some anxiety about this. John Wesley had some control issues, you might say. And he could sense that maybe he wasn't going to be in control of the Atlantic Ocean. He gets on the boat anyway. And sure enough, the inevitable storms come. And he writes in his journal how he was gripped by fear. And how there were times when he was in his cabin that the storms were so great that he was thrown out of bed and thrown out of his chair and knocked around the cabin and there were times when the waves were so large coming over the boat that water was coming through the planks and flooding the place and in the midst of all that he notices that there's a small group of people that are not gripped by fear and terror in fact they're calm through all of this At times they're singing psalms and worshiping when the storms are happening. One time they were even baptizing a child in the midst of the storms. And Wesley gets curious about what in the world do they have going on. These are some Christians from Germany called Moravians. And John Wesley starts a relationship with the Moravians talking to them about how they can be so calm when all he can think about is that these storms could sink the boat and kill them all. And Wesley begins to question whether or not he really has faith, whether or not he really trusts in God because he is so fearful that he might die before the boat ever reaches land. He begins this relationship, begins to talk to these Moravians. Once he gets to Georgia, he lives with some of them. He talks with them some more about salvation and assurance of faith. Things don't go really well for him. In Georgia, he was not really suited to this new world. He gets on a boat and goes back to England. He meets a young man who is a Moravian, Peter Bowler, develops a relationship with him. They talk more about the nature of faith and Christian life and salvation. And these Moravians tell him he should have an assurance of faith. He should have confidence that God is going to take care of him. 
And John Wesley has not had that kind of experience. But then one night in May of 1738, he gathers with a small group of Christians who are praying and doing a Bible study. And during that experience, he says his heart was strangely warmed. He counted that as his experience of assurance that he had been seeking and yet he knew had been missing from his life of faith. Through his own struggles and his fear and his failures, Wesley realized that he had been trying to do all the right things, all the good works he could so that God would love him. He also realized that his salvation came not through his works, but from the bountiful love and grace of God offered to him through Jesus Christ. He writes about this night in his journal and says this, I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Therefore, we can conclude that God uses both the experiences of others and our own experiences so that we might grow in our faith, that we might gain this assurance of faith, this complete trust in God. It becomes clear as you look at Christian history that God uses all kinds of experiences to grow people in faith. And yet so often when we find ourselves in the storms of life, we begin to panic and not trust that God is there and at work in our lives. But our story today tells us something different. Jesus reveals that God cares for each of us, each and every one of us. Therefore, we can all trust God. So like the disciples, when they wake Jesus and say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? His answer is, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obey. The question that's left for each of us is this. Will we trust and obey? Amen.